If someone has designed a building and the only place you can go to cry is a bathroom, it's not good enough mm -hmm. because that should not have to be the space, you know? Like, no. Like, why is there no space for you to be emotionally complete? Mm. That's not a waste disposal. Yeah, yeah. Effectively. Kia ora and welcome to PhD Unpacked, season 1.5. In season one of PhD Unpacked, we looked at some Aotearoa-based, thought-provoking and impactful PhD research. Um, and I think that sometimes mental health professionals, and I think I've been guilty of this too, can kind of go, well, I'm a psychologist, of course I'm trustworthy. People can trust me. They'll show up and they'll just open up and that's how it goes. And I think sometimes we don't think about the fact that we actually have to earn people's trust and do that in a continuous way in order for people to feel like they can open up. In season 1.5, we continue with our goal to make research accessible and understandable for the general public so that the mahi of these researchers can be shared more widely. Season 1.5 will tackle the topic of the built environment and seek to understand how the spaces we find ourselves in impact our emotions and sense of identity and affect how we relate to others. While I sat in the room with the authors and conducted the interviews, I also exist as the narrator. Whenever you hear this beat, You know I'm coming in to piece together two parts of the interview. Today we're joined by Claire Ford. Claire is originally from Christchurch and after completing her undergrad in architecture, she embarked on a Masters of Architecture in 2017. Claire submitted her Masters in 2020 and is currently doing a carpentry apprenticeship. Claire and I spoke about her thesis titled, Where Can I Cry? Providing for Emotionality in the Built Environment. But before we began our kōrero, I asked Claire why she wanted to do a master's in architecture, and this was her answer. Um, well, architecture's always really been a part of my life. My mum's an engineer, um, and so there's always sort of been discussion about buildings and how we build and why we build sort of around me as I was growing up. And so I think I sort of started noticing architecture from a really young age and really started to understand that people create the spaces that we live mm. our life in. And I just think that that's a, such a beautiful thing to be able to do and to be able to share with the people around you to create spaces where they can be their most human, most enabled self. Yeah, that's really, I actually really relate to that point. My mum did a master's in art and design, and I think that's why I find myself gravitating towards these spaces, although she did not give me any talent in that space, uh, and that's why I'm doing a BA. Um, um, so why did you focus on the built environment's emotional impacts? I think the emotionality of the human experience has always interested me. Um, I think that one of the big things that sort of pushed me towards the sort of idea about looking at how the mind is affected by architecture and how architecture um, sort of is created by the minds that inhabit it was um, the experience of going through the earthquakes in Christchurch and seeing how you know, obviously a natural disaster is a rough thing to go through but after that all settled down the feeling of loss associated with buildings and how 
strong those emotional connections were between people and the places, Mm -hmm. not just where they had had specific experiences, but where they had sort of aligned their identities with in such strong ways, just because it was there, not necessarily because they had this one really strong memory there, but that this whole sort of environment had coalesced around this life that they were so proud of and so tied up in and feeling them having to grieve that really sort of opened my eyes to how much impact those spaces had but also how much power those spaces have over the agency that people can express themselves in. That was so beautiful. (laughs) Do you think that you know, now Christchurch continues to be part of this rebuilding process. It is also rebuilding a sense of communal identity for Christchurch. I think that the way that those things grow is so organic and has such a long sort of time frame Mm. to them that a lot of those memories become sort of an intergenerational thing in a way. Like, I'm not saying that the the way that architecture has been designed in Christchurch is impersonal. Mm. It's just that the personal hasn't existed within it for long enough for it to have that same impact Mm -hmm. of what had already been there for so long. Um, You know, people need to have not just their own stories, but other people's stories to layer into the identities that they build around those spaces. So in a way, it is really exciting to see how that starts again from scratch mm-hmm. in that process of communities reaffirming themselves and reforming themselves around the spaces, whether they're you know, top-down design spaces like the CBD or the more organic spaces that have really appeared out of that um, experience where people took schools that had to be closed because their populations grew away from them Mm -hmm. and reformed them into community places to have a whole different sort of education housed within them. And the number of scales that that happens across, that we're talking about a whole city's identity, a whole country's understanding of the city's identity, Mm. but also each person's identity and the interpersonal relationships that take place in the city. It's so exciting to see and that's like, that sort of conversation was happening just as I was coming into architecture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that energy, I guess, still sort of exists around that sort of generation of architects that I started architecture school with. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm really excited to see what those people are going to start designing off that sort of basis for their architectural understanding. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of every episode, we look at some definitions and concepts from the research being discussed. Within your research, you use terms that seem familiar, but within the context of your research, they have very layered meanings. Feelings and emotions are at the center of your research, but can you explain how these two terms differ, especially in the context of your master's? Yeah, so one of those great things about academia is that we start this sort of parallel language where words that are very commonplace mean absolutely different things. (laughs) Um, I came up against the feelings and emotions um, thing a lot because there really was a need to define them separately. So feelings are more of the sensory imports like touch, smell, sight, 
things that you um, feel sort of in a primary sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to sort of separate that from emotions, even though we use the words interchangeably in common day. Um, and emotions needed to be those bigger, deeper things that are abstract and personal Mm -hmm. that you can't just pick up Mm -hmm. and point to. Um, And that was really important, particularly in the understanding of how we interact with the built environment because it's something physical that we can touch and feel and see and smell and taste maybe (laughs) if if that's how you want to approach a space but um that we also interact with them emotionally Mm -hmm. through atmospheres and feelings that are more abstract than Mm -hmm. just uh, I touch a table I see a window and so now we understand emotions the other word necessary to understand is in the title of your thesis it is emotionality can you explain what emotionality is? Emotionality is the way in which we express those emotions, those deeper feelings, felt, you know, say feelings, touching, mm-hmm. feeling, brings information in, mm-hmm. emotions process them. Emotionality is what we put back out into the space around us, how we express that in ourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I mean, crying in the title um, is probably one of our most powerful emotionalities Mm -hmm. Um, and how that relates to just about every emotion that can be experienced within a human scale. If you're an avid listener, you would know that this is the part of the show where we discuss an author's methodology. But in Claire's case, we chose to highlight her preface – In her preface, she stated that her master's was a personal exploration of agency and emotionality in architectural space. That as a researcher, but also as an emotional being, she is in her own world. I asked her how this impacted how she presented her findings. To be perfectly honest, embarking on this master's, uh, I think like most people going into research, I was very naive of what I was going to find. Um, I sort of... I think uh, it's not necessarily a lie, mm-hmm. but um, I still had this understanding that I was going to find some sort of objectivity, some sort of you know singular shining truth. Um, and so the realization that I am a single world and you are a single world, and you know we're surrounded by similar things, but the way we experience and see them are so different, and the way that came through in the thesis was understanding that um, every bit of information that came through, every part of the design process that um, came in parallel to the research um, was really filtered through my own worldviews, my own experiences at the time, and it became very glaringly obvious. I sort of went through... um, Quite, I mean, as most people do when they are putting themselves through a very high-level education, it becomes really stressful. And going through those sort of really down moments in this process through the design 
side of things became very obvious as you come back out and you look back at what you designed. Mm -hmm. You go, what? I was needing something right there. (laughs) And that sort of process made it very obvious that this research can only really have been applied in the design side to a test subject of one, Mm. you know, sample size of one. But that doesn't mean that the basis and the learning from it is necessarily only applicable to one person Mm -hmm. and, you know, can only build one person buildings Mm -hmm. (laughs) forever. Um, It's very much an understanding of if we were to go into a design process with the understanding of scope of worlds Mm -hmm. that could be experienced within this building, that we start to bring that care and compassion, that intentional action that makes up not just the intention, Mm -hmm. but also the action that comes together to make a design that cares about who's going to live in it, who that cares about the full experience of that person, not just as an inhabitant, Mm -hmm but as an agent within the building who's trying to create and grow their own world and that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I really resonate with Claire's point around the scope of worlds and how people experience different worlds. There's no singular experience, but it's important to consider how different people may experience a space. Moving forward, I then asked Claire to briefly explain how the urban built environment impacts our emotional agency. I think the easiest way into, I mean, because it's quite complex mm-hmm. um, and it's so subliminal and layered into our society. And I don't mean subliminal in a sinister sense. Mm-hmm. It's just something we're so familiar with that it doesn't register to us anymore. But it's this idea that our built environment gives us cues about what emotions are appropriate in that space. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we stop. We don't. We don't stop the emotion from happening, but we change our emotionality. Mm-hmm. And our emotions are expressed th- out of ourselves through our emotionality. So if you can't have that emotionality, your emotion just gets bigger mm-hmm. and more suppressed and more harmful. I genuinely believe that there are no bad emotionalities. There's just harmful emotionalities. You know, feeling a sad emotion is not a bad emotion, but feeling a sad emotion and not being allowed to process it, that is a bad thing. (laughs) And so the level of sort of repressed feeling that we have to... Who feels like they're just welcome to feel however they want in the middle of a bus stop? Mm. Or like walking down the middle of the street or walking into a bank. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, not okay, not because our society has created it as a way to be not okay. I genuinely believe that we haven't created spaces for us to be okay in. 
That's so beautiful. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really, what the thing that I really enjoyed about your work was, although the title is Where Can I Cry? You made a very active point of saying that it was about emotional agency, about being able to experience the spectrum of emotions that we have as opposed mm. to, because again, if you create spaces for you to cry, for you to be angry, for you to you know be frustrated, then you're prescribing, again, a cue. Yeah. Whereas if we built with this intentional attitude that we are emotional beings and we experience all those emotions, people can mm. feel as if they can express them. Yeah. And I, I'm so surprised every time come across somebody who doesn't feel like they're allowed to have dignity in all of their emotions and I think that's a very manufactured thing Mm -hmm. and I think that it it is a basic human right to have dignity that is like the first thing Mm -hmm. on the charter of of human rights um that we are all born equal in dignity Mm -hmm. and the fact that we can't have all of our emotions as a dignified experience mm-hmm. is so demeaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're, you know, living in these environments that are loud and demanding and we're just being held at higher and higher levels of background stress and anxiety, mm-hmm. even if that's not a you know, medical thing that you deal with, mm-hmm. Everybody in urban societies is are experiencing this. This was part of um, the research. One of the things I refer to a lot in the thesis is um, this study looking at how urban spaces impact people uh, who are experiencing neurological distress um, and how much harder it makes being anything Mm -hmm. in um, societal expectations and being part of community in any way. Um, I think the thing that really sort of stood out to me, I'm not not sure if I actually say it in the thesis at all, but um, more and more as I was talking to people about the thesis as I was going through it, it sort of came to be um, like, the thing that people go, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's like if someone has designed a building and the only place you can go to cry is a bathroom, it's not good enough Mm -hmm. because that should not have to be the space, you know. No. Have I cried in the bathroom? Yes. Haven't we all? (laughs) Like why is there no space for you to be emotionally complete Mm. that's not a waste disposal yeah yeah effectively correct me if I'm wrong but as you spoke all I could think about was an airport and I say an airport because I feel as if if I thought of a building that does allow us to experience a breadth of emotions it's an airport because if you see somebody farewelling a friend or a family and they're bawling their eyes out or they're passionately kissing or any of those it's accepted in that Mm. space and it's funny to think that an airport is where you're allowed to experience those things. There, this this is a thing. This is a field of research. Effectively, it focuses in on why do people feel weirdly comfortable to just do what they got to do um, in spaces like airports. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of other sort of building typologies that fit into this character category. But um, 
the idea is pretty much that this is a place with such a focused need that mm. it exists for such a focused reason. And I'm not sure if it's because it's completely forgotten that humans <laughs> exist and it is just built for planes or if it is only expecting people to be there in the most transient, in-the-moment existence, mm. that the expectation just breaks down all of a sudden. And yes, I will take my shoes off <laughs> and walk barefooted holding my toothbrush in public, you know? Yeah, yeah. All those weird and wonderful moments that you get in an airport Absolutely. because people are just like, I am here to... to be on the way somewhere else. Exactly. And I'm in this transitional space, so yeah. I don't have to be anything. The space is happening around me. That is such yeah. a beautiful thing you just said. Because I, I agree, you're not you're only a passenger in that space, right? You're not if you're at a, even at a bus stop or on a bus, you're going to be at work. You're mm. a worker. Or you're going to a certain place. You're going yeah. to eat. You're a restaurant person. In it a doesn't expect airport. you to have any identity. Nothing. So I'm you just you be there as you are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, I could sit here all day. So I'm going to just get back into podcast yes. mode. Um, you explain in your master's how when we think of care in the built environment, we jump to the assumption that we are referring to hospitals or rest homes, places we typically associate with care. We don't think of our everyday spaces, the places we spend most of our lives, which made me think of how we view care and well-being. Do you think planning our dwellings, our workplaces, etc., with intentional care will be a form of preventative care? And how will it impact the levels of distress associated with the urban environment? That's a really loaded one because I would love it if architecture could solve everybody's <laughs> problems and create a perfect world. Um, but I genuinely believe that there's the realm of architecture and the things that architecture and our spatial design have power over and then there's definitely things where medical professionals psychologists psychiatrists um, emotional support systems mm -hmm. should be picking up other things but I do feel like architecture could be contributing more that the architecture that's not just in spaces of highest need biggest you know drama the you know the architecture that you interact with every day that that could be taking more weight mm -hmm. just by being quieter you know it could do more by doing less um i think that there would be quite a bit of good that can be done by stripping out some of the background noise in people's lives that comes to them through the built environment. I don't think it's going to stop people who are unwell from being unwell, mm -hmm. but I think it's going to give them one less thing to worry about, one less thing to negotiate. Um, I think it's going to break down the barriers between people who are feeling a little bit off mm -hmm. and getting the little bits of help that they need, whether that's from feeling like it is a safe place to go out and have a walk mm. or that there are spaces where they can go and sit and just be. 
how they need to be, that their emotionality is welcome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can be in our home spaces. I mean, particularly, like, in this society, we have more power over our environment and our surroundings than we have ever had. Mm-hmm. Like, if we want to go out and rip up all the streets and plant trees, we have all the tools to do that and make the trees grow. As a collective, that's a lot of agency. That's a lot of power. As individuals, we have so little. I think as individuals, we have less than mm-hmm. we've probably ever had. Mm-hmm. And that comes across through people needing to care enough at the point when the things are being created in the first place that they can allow people to be where they need to be. It sounds quite loose because, as I was saying earlier, like there are so many worlds and that will look so different as a design strategy in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that the person coming to that is thinking about that human experience first and foremost. And unfortunately, like we'd love for it to be that way. As designers, I think everybody would like to feel empowered to do that. But um, unfortunately, <laughs> we live in a society where a bottom line needs to be met. And I think that that compromise has to be made mm-hmm. too often. As we strip layers of stimulus out of our built environment, things that are overstimulating and over um, over demanding mm-hmm. what our emotionality is allowed to be in the built environment, I can't see any argument as to how that isn't going to reduce general low levels of distress. If you take out the low level, then you know the bar for what is high level sort of shifts a little bit. And even if honestly, even if that shifts for one person. Mm-hmm then redesigning the building is worth it. Yep. The bar is on the ground is what you're saying. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm going to call out New World Thorndon right now. They have this giant television inside. I know this is interior, but it's already so many lights in there. And then they've this mm. entire huge television that plays music videos, and I don't understand it, and it overstimulates me every time I go in there. Honestly, in general discussion, Supermarket shopping is generally considered one of the hardest, most distressing things in most people's weeks mm-hmm. um, in terms of people. I mean, this is obviously coming from people who are comfortable in discussing their emotional experiences of the world around them and are probably already uh, aware of it because they have experienced mm-hmm. moments of severe distress. But um, it's the lights it's the music it's the um scale of the aisles it is the um way everything is laid out to move you through Mm -hmm. and i haven't looked far enough into the deeper literature around this Mm -hmm. to be able to say you know exact pinpointing you know angles and diametrics and stuff but the way that you know the the speed and size that you're supposed to be moving through that space is something somebody has calculated 
And if you can't move at that speed, it is not going to be comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. If you need to sit down, it's not a safe space for you to be. Mm-hmm. If you can't stand in a queue and say standing for more than five minutes in one spot, it's not an okay place for you to be. I mean, I know that some of those are physical needs, mm-hmm. but they become emotional needs. Absolutely. And also food is a need. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like very distressing spaces. Absolutely. I have regularly gone and done people's shopping for them because the going to the supermarket was going to be an absolute disaster experience for mm-hmm. them. And that's just something that, you know, the idea that, that more than like two people in an entire city mm-hmm. have to experience that and that people who are not even considered particularly um, medically needy mm-hmm. are already in that space, mm-hmm. that, that looks like a problem to me. So you, you submitted your work at the beginning of 2020, which we would mm-hmm. deem a pre-COVID era. Do you think that COVID, or more specifically, the fact that over the past two years we have spent more time inside has shifted how people understand their relationship to space? And if so, have you had any of these realizations yourself? I love this question. (laughs) I really do. And I think absolutely it has. I think that people are suddenly more aware of how much demand was being put on them by inhabiting the urban environments particularly I don't think that people have been given a toolkit to express how deeply that has affected and sat with them in their lives before we experienced the lockdowns Mm -hmm. and were separated from that part part of our day-to-day lives I'm you know obviously I handed in my thesis (laughs) And then they cut your, you know, they cut your access to academic work and academic study. And I haven't been able to keep up with the literature as much. And I'm really excited to see what research comes out of this because I was shocked by the lack of direct research there was about this topic and about how we can create spaces to allow emotions. A lot of research about how to how to control emotions, how to create emotions in space. Not much of the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of the way lockdowns sort of opened people's eyes in a very general way, that suddenly people outside of specialty built environment fields were seeing this and how that might start shifting research interests mm-hmm. into how the built environment can house emotionality in a more successful and more constructive way. I also think that as there is positive outcomes from this, obviously I think people became more empathetic, hopefully. Um, It also had some detrimental impacts, and this has been something that maybe I have talked about, but a lot of people are talking about around me is this idea that because working from home has become so common, people cannot uh, separate their home environment from an environment in which they also work. Mm-hmm. And it truly has this impact on us and our like psyche in that they can't turn their brains off or the first thing they do in the morning is check their emails. 
Um, and yeah, I thought that was interesting. Not it's not leading anywhere. This point was just for me to make. Um, but yeah, interesting to think about. I don't know. Perhaps that does kind of come into it though, because we've created our home spaces as our only place to be emotional, and I don't know how much that interacts back. Mm. You know, if you've spent a whole life feeling like home is the only place you can be a certain person mm-hmm. and behave a certain way, mm-hmm. and suddenly another part of your life has to bleed into that space, how do you negotiate both at once? I don't believe you should have to. I, I feel like you should be allowed to have, you know, obviously a home that is separate from the life where you work and get paid to do whatever it is you do Um, but that you should be allowed to be an authentic version of yourself in both places absolutely and I I think some of that is cultural Mm -hmm. architecture isn't gonna you know change the way everybody's brain works Mm -hmm. Um, but as we have to create spaces in our homes where we can be both. I think that that will become part of how a culture shifts to realise that we can be both outside of home as well. Yeah, I agree. And to put an antidote in there, I used to work in a building and they had like a well-being room, which was a oh, room like near the basement. The well-being room. It was I can like imagine it now. A hospital bed had like a crappy little sink and it was facing like a cement wall. And I was like, this is, I hate this. This makes me feel more stressed than my office space. Did I go and nap there? Yes. But that was not a place of well-being. I will put Mm. that out there. Anyway, to end the episode, now that it has been a couple of years since submitting your thesis, what are some things that have stuck with you from your research or things that may have surprised you? I think it, I think it really has become part of the way I see the world um I shifted into building shortly after completing my thesis as a way of getting the practical built understanding I mean I'm I'm really interested in what I did my thesis on but I do also believe that if we're going to build more successful buildings um I can design something as lovely as I like but if the person who's swinging the hammer on the job decides that the detail is going to be different because it doesn't work in the physical world I may as well have designed a cucumber I think it's also opened my eyes a lot more to the amount of design wisdom and spatial wisdom that's out there in day-to-day life Mm -hmm. Um, and how much people who have no articulation of architectural theory absolutely understand what they need from their space and what they want from their space and are not distracted by anything. Um, I think that that has been really important and I think it's also been really important to understand um, the sort of the chaos that goes into an emotional world as well. Like I, you know, sat and wrote all this and read all these things and um, it's great to create theories about how 
an abstract human being experiences the or comes to experience and build a world and identity and all these things but the reality is always going to be more chaotic mm-hmm. and it's been really nice to have that academic training and then the plain word <laughs> sort of education about it as well Thank you, Claire, for such an insightful discussion and for coming on to season 1.5 of PhD Unpacked. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Claire's masters, which can be found in the bio for this episode. So that's it. Three authors, three episodes, and one tired gal. We hope you enjoyed coming on this journey to learn about the built environment with the PhD Unpacked team. I, for one, can say I've learned a lot about the space around me, and I hope you have too. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. Thank you, Wellington Access Radio, for the space to record the show. Until next season, ka kite.